Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually, consciously living today. Here's your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Good morning and welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living today. I am the producer and co-host of the show, Dr. Laurel Trujillo, and today our topic is parenthood as a path to spiritual awakening. I'm delighted to be joined today by Anne Cushman, the author of Enlightenment for Idiots, Moving into Meditation, and the book we will be discussing today, The Mama Sutra, A Story of Love, Loss, and the Path of Motherhood. Anne is a leading national pioneer in the integration of mindfulness, embodied meditation, and creative expression. Her essays on spiritual practice and everyday life have appeared in the New York Times, the Yoga Journal, O, the Oprah Magazine, and other publications. You can find out more about Anne, her writing and teaching schedule at her website, annecushman.com, and that's Anne with an E. A-N-N-E-C-U-S-H-M-A-N.com. Welcome, Anne Cushman. I'm delighted you could join me today on the Yoga Hour. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. So before we dive in to our dialogue about parenthood as a path to spiritual awakening, let's dive within ourselves for those who are able Let's have a little bit of um, yoga, a little bit of meditation before we begin. Oh. So let's begin right where we are, just feeling our bodies in space, feeling the surfaces that support us. And then turning our attention to our ever-present companion, our breath. And just noticing, as we take a fully conscious breath, noticing the inhale and the exhale. Feeling the cool air entering the nostrils on the inhale. And the warm air flowing out. And with each breath, let's imagine with each inhale, we can dive within. And with each exhale, we can relax. Allowing our attention to drop from our head into our heart. And just resting there. 
just being. And as we rest in being, knowing that we rest in the source and substance of all that is. It's within us, between us and all around us. And just by being present and noticing, we can rest there. And as we rest in our hearts, we may notice thoughts or feelings that arise. We realize we can watch them. Watch them as they arise. And watch them as they pass away, resting in this essence of our being. Allowing the peace of this essence of our being to permeate the mental field, the emotional nature, and the physical body. Opening to feel as though each and every cell is resting there. Absorbing that peace like the dry ground absorbs the rain. And as we close this moment of meditation, remember, this is something that's accessible to us anytime, any time of day. Turning to our breath, taking a few conscious breaths. It's always with us. Once again, Ann Cushman, welcome to the Yoga Hour. I really appreciated your book, The Mama Sutra, excuse me, and the way that you illustrate how everyday life is really not separate from the spiritual path, but actually can become the spiritual path itself. This message is such an important one and important in, in our spiritual tradition of uh, Kriya Yoga. And I think too often um, there's a perceived separation, you know, between the worldly life and the spiritual life. And uh, your book really helps reinforce that this isn't the case. So um, motherhood is really the focus of your book. And, you know, how it has been your path to uh, spiritual awakening. So since our listeners are both men and women, we decided to use the term parenthood rather than motherhood or fatherhood to describe the experience. And obviously, motherhood does include some experiences like pregnancy and childbirth that aren't shared by fathers. 
But it seems to me that most of the experiences apply to both. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, Laurel, you know, I think you're absolutely right that the stories in this book are really relevant to parents of any gender identification. And parenthood itself is a very powerful path. And as you point out, fathers share many of these experiences. So that said, I think it is actually very important that this book as a memoir is written squarely from my point of view as a woman practitioner in these traditions. And I think that's important because, as I mentioned in the book, over the centuries, these traditions have to a large extent been primarily passed down by um, male teachers and within male-dominated cultures and traditions. And so one of the unintended side effects of that is that women's lives, women's experiences, and women's bodies have sometimes not been um, visible within the tradition, and those voices haven't been spoken. Mm -hmm. So some of the feedback that I've gotten is that it's actually very enriching for both men and women. Um, it's enriching to the whole tradition to, um, to, to hear stories that are told from the point of view of a female practitioner. And in a way, it's particularly important because, as you know, in the contemporary yoga and meditation scene, there are many, many, many um, uh, women practitioners and women teachers. And right. so I think it's a time when that perspective um, is really rising, you know, which is a way of enriching the practice for everybody. Mm -hmm. No, I totally agree. I totally agree in that. And, uh, um, I, I do think it brings a really good uh, perspective. And one of the other uh, things that I wanted to highlight is something that you just mentioned with this, is, which is this, you know, kind of contrast between, you know, monastic practitioners and, and lay practitioners. And certainly in uh, the yoga, uh, you know, tradition there, you know, there have been many monastic teachers as well as in Buddhism. Um, in, in our tradition of Kriya Yoga, there's also been a very, um, you know, good representation of householders as well. In fact, Lahiri Mahasaya, who's credited re with reviving the Kriya Yoga tradition through his time with Babaji in the, up in the you know, Himalayas in 1861, actually came back from that experience and lived as a householder after that and had five children after meeting his guru in the Himalayas. Ray Eugene Davis, who was a direct, direct disciple of Yogananda, lived as a householder for most of his life. And then Yogacharya O'Brien, the founder and host of this show, is both a mother and a grandmother, in addition to being a spiritual teacher. And the message that they all taught is that uh, spiritual awakening is not just for the yogi in the cave, but really for all of us. Where Eugene Davis was told by his guru, Paramahansa Yogananda, that with dedicated spiritual practice, we can all awaken in this lifetime. It's for all of us. Everyday life with all its joys and sorrows is really fertile ground for awakening. So um, what what would you say about that, though, you know, this contrast between the, you know, monastic tradition and the lay and the lay tradition? Well, I think that one of the the interesting things about the yoga and dharma traditions is they're manifesting um, in contemporary life, particularly in the West, is that most contemporary Western practitioners are, in fact, lay practitioners. They don't live in ashrams. They don't live in monasteries. They may visit or live for a period 
and then they often go back and resume their lives. And so the daily life of a householder uh, is really the primary ground of practice, I would say, for most contemporary practitioners. Mm-hmm. And then also, I think um, one of the things you realize if you visit or spend a little time in a monastery or ashram is that monastery life, ashram life, is also ordinary daily life. You can have this kind of romantic idea about it that, oh, it's just pure spirit and chanting, but you still have to cook, you have to clean, you have to get along with the other people in the monastery, you have to make decisions about um, schedules, and you have to make arrangements for the purchase of the food and the, the sustenance of the community. So, in a sense, the distinctions um, get a little blurred, and I think for those of us in daily life, the idea is to really bring the teachings and weave them into the fabric of our life while still having these islands of formal practice in which we can formally train to renew our spirits, to clear our minds, and to energize and calm our bodies so that we can be in our daily lives with that quality of presence and compassion. Mm, That's very well said. So your book, the Mama Sutra, is dedicated both to your mother and to your daughter, Sierra, who was stillborn. So what inspired you to share your personal story in this way? Well, I think that um, when I began working on this book, of course, I had no idea what the events in it would be. And Mm. so I began taking notes about this journey when I first got pregnant. And at the time, I had been a practitioner of yoga and meditation for many, many years, almost half my life, um, over 15 years at that point. And I had also been a writer, and I had just finished a book, which was a travel guide to ashrams and yoga centers in India. And so when I became pregnant, I thought, well, this is a kind of journey, And it's also a form of spiritual practice. And why don't I, just as I've been writing about yoga, meditation, and travel in India, why don't I start taking notes and write about this journey into motherhood as a kind of pilgrimage and practice? And I thought when I began that I knew how it would go. And I had preconceived ideas about it. And just as when going on a meditation retreat or traveling in India, things didn't go as I had planned. And a lot of the big teachings came in the ways where things really um, fell apart. And so, as you mentioned, the um, my first pregnancy ended in tragedy when my daughter Sierra was stillborn just a few days before her due date. And that experience was both so devastating for me and such a profound um, spiritual teaching. And I relied so heavily on my practices to really get me through it that, of course, I wanted to include that in what I was writing about um, just as a way of both helping other mothers who might go through something like that, but also just addressing this basic question of, Uh, love in a world where uh, things are uncertain and when everything is changing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. And it was, um, you know, it was quite something to read about your journey at that time. I mean, it just sounds like it, um, 
you know, it, it, it was so devastating. So, but I wanted to read a part of your book uh, from page 36. Um, <clears throat> you say, you write, I used to think that spiritual practice would be a way of lessening the pain of grief, that I could escape into some self, capital S self, some detached witness, witness consciousness that is beyond the world from which I would watch my life dispassionately like a movie I could turn off at any moment. But in fact, we are attached to life by a tie as primal as the umbilical cord, thick and dark and coiled and throbbing with blood. Now I know that I would never want to be so detached, so cut off from that primal pulse that I didn't mourn my daughter's death. And I no longer even believe that's what the yogis meant, that we should use the practice as a kind of spiritual epidural to anesthetize us from the pain of our lives. I just thought that was so, that was really so beautiful. So can you share more uh, about this with us? What did you learn from facing the pain of the loss of your daughter? Well, through this experience, I would say that I really came face to face with this fundamental truth that in human life, love and loss are always braided together. Mm. You really can't have one without eventually having the other because of the great truth of impermanence, which um, is so central to the Dharma teachings that everything that we most hold dear will eventually change form. And and so if we let our fear of loss block us from opening to love, then we can get numb or we can build up a kind of armor around our hearts. And I think there's a kind of misuse of spiritual practice where, um, where we can, in a sense, try to numb ourselves or protect ourselves in that way. Whereas in the very essence of our practice, um, where is a kind of tenderizing of our hearts, and it's a way of helping us learn to um, really know that um, that we can live with an open, tender heart in a world that's ever changing, uncertain, unstable. Uh, that we can live at ease with uh, this truth that that all the things of this world arise and pass away. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, one of the things that you write about, you know, in the book is um, how grief and joy are, you know, so intertwined. So another brief quote here, in those wrenching moments, I'd see that grief and joy are inextricably intertwined. My sorrow was a way of touching a truth that the world is both fleeting and infinitely precious. So, how did allowing yourself to fully feel the grief of the loss of your first child, Sierra, right before she was born, um, also help you to appreciate the preciousness of the world more fully? Well, one of the things we realize as we practice yoga and we practice meditation is that we don't get to pick and choose what moments in our life we are open to. Right, We don't get to just tune in and be present for those moments when everything's going right and the meditation's really beautiful and the yoga pose is easy and our job is a great success and our relationship is just humming along. We don't get to say, I'll be open for that 
And then I'll tune out when, you know, my muscles are kind of tight or I've got a shoulder injury or my child's not behaving the way I want or my partner is letting me down or I'm letting myself down. I'm just going to kind of not feel that and skip over that. Um, if we start tuning out for our life, then we tune out for the precious moments as well. And so um, I think that the, our practice really helps us uh, learn to be present in a consistent kind of way and have a flexible, open heart that can include both the difficult, the inevitable, difficult and painful moments of life as part of our humanity. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we all know that, of course, there are both of those uh, all you know, uh, moments of, you know, joy and moments of sorrow, obviously, permeate everyone's everyone's lives. Um, so kind of getting touching back on what we were talking about earlier, you know, this um, uh, kind of predominance, uh, at least, you know, over the centuries of, you know, male voices, I really appreciated uh, the the uh, story that you shared in the book about uh, the birth of Buddha, Siddhartha, which, as you point out, was likely written by men with male characters at the center. And then you rewrite it in the book from the perspective of Siddhartha's mother. So can you share a little bit about that story with us and, and, uh, and why it's important to you? Well, for those who aren't familiar with the way the story of the Buddha's birth is traditionally, you know, mythically told, it really does seem to be a myth that was created and passed down by monastic males. In the story, uh, Queen Maya and her husband are childless for many years. Eventually, Queen Maya has a dream about a white elephant, which circles around her three times and enters her through her right side. And 10 months later, the baby pops out bloodlessly and cleanly, also through her right side, takes three steps um, while the the mother is standing under a tree, just leaning elegantly against the tree. The baby pops out of her side, takes three steps, raises his hands and proclaims, I am the world honored one. And at that point, a few days later, the mother um, dies and kind of her role is complete and the young prince is raised by his maternal aunt. And so it's a story with no mess, no blood, no female body parts. It's all very tidy. There are no crying, crying, colicky babies in the story. So I, I retold the myth. And again, speaking that this is a myth, the original version is a myth and, and my version is also meant not to be a historical document. Um, In my retelling, it includes Queen Maya's long struggles to get pregnant, her struggles with infertility, her miscarriages. She has a stillbirth. She eventually has an affair with her charioteer, uh, but that's how she gets pregnant. And then she has a terrible, painful labor and in the middle of it um, uh, realizes that she's going to have to make the choice between her life and her babies. And there's an emergency C-section performed by um, by the maternal aunt, um, Prajapati, who has to cut the baby out of the womb, and and that they have a few moments of love together. They share this beautiful love, and then the, the mother dies. Mm-hmm. And so I told the myth that way, not because I think this is true, <laughs> more true than the other one, but because it's a human retelling. It's a real 
story and that the message of this myth is that from loss and mistakes and imperfection and betrayal and from the mess and chaos and unclarity of human life, awakening can be born. You know, the the Buddha, the word Buddha means awake. And so it really points to the fact that, as they say in the traditions, the lotus of awakening arises from the mud. It needs the mud of our life in order to uh, in order to open and blossom. And so that was the uh, that was the intention of that retelling. And I intercut that retelling with the story of the birth of my son. Um, the healthy and joyful birth of my son that followed the tragic stillbirth of my daughter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, it was, um, you know, it was really, you know, beautifully written. I also appreciated that um, in the original, you know, myth, it's the, you know, the child himself who says, uh, you know, what is it? I am the time honored one. But in your retelling, it's the mother. And that's like a blessing, you know, that she, that she says to him. Yes, she does. And I, and I think her words are, you are my world-honored one. Yes. Um, so it's really speaking to a mother's love for her child, which, of course, would be the last thing that she is feeling before she dies. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Yeah. Less offering. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I... I uh, did appreciate how you intertwined that, you know, with the story of, of the birth of your son and how obviously that was playing on so many of your, you know, what had been very recent experiences of yours of the loss of your daughter right at the end of your pregnancy, just a very few days before, uh, before she was, um, before she was born. Um, just uh, obviously was a very, um, you know, powerful and uh, rich uh, part of your life. And with that, we have come to the break. You're listening to The Yoga Hour with our guest, Anne Cushman, author of the book we are discussing today, The Mama Sutra. Anne Cushman's essays on spiritual practice and everyday life have appeared in the New York Times, Yoga Journal, and, oh, the Oprah Magazine, you can find out more about Anne, her books, and teaching schedule at annecushman.com. That's Anne with an E. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us at yogahour at unity.fm. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and co-host of the Yoga Hour. When we come back from the break, we'll explore more about parenthood as a path to spiritual awakening. We'll be right back. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, celebrating diversity and inclusivity for Pride Month. We are one. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. This programming is made possible through the generous donations of listeners like you. If you feel inspired by this programming, we invite you to contribute. 
Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate to make your offering today. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment by Ed McShane, a coach for your heart. When we're not feeling well, we tend to eat healthfully. Sickness illuminates our appetites. We drink tea instead of coffee. We eat soup instead of bread. We consume honey instead of sugar. We turn down the music. We speak in low tones. We walk a little more deliberately. We rest as we're able, and we catch up on our reading. Why don't we live our lives like this all the time? Letting go, speaking softly, receding from the urgency of life, and eating more soup sounds like a life we want to live every day. Add some flowers, a nice quilt, and some eastern-facing windows, and you've got a great foundation for a peaceful life. Illness, in its own odd way, reintroduces us to the components of how we should live away from the noises and the stress that we so often overlook. This week, take a few hours to engage in all the behaviors that help you heal while you're sick. You'll reset your priorities from doing what you should do to doing what you need to do. To find out more about A Coach for Your Heart, visit acoachforyourheart.com. Ah, Italy. The food, the wine, the art, the culture. Join friends from Unity on a trip to Italy in the spring of 2020. In Rome, you'll walk in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, visit the Colosseum and the Roman Forum, then head down the beautiful Amalfi Coast to Sorrento, the Isle of Capri, and the ruins of Pompeii, all with people you feel as if you already know. For more, visit unity.org travel. Sometimes you might feel so alone with your problems, you don't know where to turn. We invite you to call Silent Unity, the 24-7 prayer ministry, where someone is waiting to pray with you every day at any hour. Listen and relax as you hear their beautiful words affirm the highest and best outcome for you and those you love. No matter what's going on in your life, Silent Unity is always standing by. Call today, 816-969-2000. Get inspired with Temple Hayes and the Intentional Spirit, Wednesday at 1 p.m. Central here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Each week, Temple shares tools and practices to help you thrive in the most challenging times. Temple also welcomes fascinating guests who share their stories and struggles on the spiritual path. Follow Temple on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date with the show. Become an Intentional Spirit with Temple Hayes here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. You're listening to The Yoga Hour, living the eternal way with your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome back to The Yoga Hour. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo producer and co-host of the show, and I'm here today with author, meditation, and Hatha yoga teacher, Anne Cushman. And Anne, earlier in the show, we were we were talking about, um, you know, the kind of the contrast between um, monastic tradition and lay, you know, uh, tradition. And uh, you had, uh, you mentioned something that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh had said. So uh, can you, can you share that with the listeners? Yes, this was on a retreat that I was on with Thich Nhat Hanh many years ago, back in the 90s at his community in France, Plum Village. And somebody raised their hand in the middle of this in-depth intensive retreat and asked Thich Nhat Hanh what the difference was between practicing as a monk 
in monastic practice and practicing as a lay practitioner. And Thich Nhat Hanh looked back at us all and he said, it's exactly the same practice. It's just that being a monk is easier. He said, <laughs> monastic practice is easier, lay practice is harder. <laughs> and I thought that that was so powerful because often we think it the other way around. Like there can be this idea, well, that's the real practice, being in a monk, being in an ashram, being in a monastery or an ashram. But I think what he was pointing to and he, what he elaborated on, as I recall, was that there's a real simplicity to the monastic life. Mm-hmm. And that late relationships are more complicated. There's not the support of the society. Um, you're not living with the support of a community who are all dedicated to your practice. Mm-hmm. So you have to remind yourself and you have to set up the rituals and the routines and sustain them on your own, which is harder. I think there's a real support to the schedule and community practice of a monastery or ashram that can be challenging for us as lay practitioners to recreate. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. And and um, you had alluded earlier to, you know, the importance of doing things like going on retreat um, and having that be an intermittent, you know, reminder and a rededication and um, something, you know, wonderful for um, typically for bodies, hearts, minds, spirits, you know, all of those things to be refreshed and then, you know, come back into a, a lay um, lay practice. So um, were there teachings that you had practiced that didn't seem to be congruent with motherhood or, or did you come to interpret them differently as a woman, as a mother? Well, I think that one of the, um, the words that kept running through my mind and kind of it was like a koan for me in these early months and years of motherhood was a word that gets tossed around a lot in the spiritual traditions, um, non-attachment, right? Mm-hmm. We talk about not being attached. And um, and then, of course, as a parent, there is profound and deep attachment. And in fact, there's a whole school of parenting called attachment parenting, which mm-hmm. is about creating this healthy connection, this very important bond um, between the parent, between the baby and the parents and the caregivers so that the child grows up feeling secure and held. And so I was reflecting a lot on this idea of non-attachment, which I think can get really misinterpreted on the spiritual path as a kind of indifference. And in fact, that is what's in Buddhist practice sometimes called the near enemy. And so I think what um, what I was reflecting on is I don't think that that's what non-attachment means. And it, it can easily be used that way. It can be misused that way as, uh, as uh, oh, you're just being so attached. You should really let go in this moment and then, you know, put up with this situation, which is untenable, right? Or, right. or not care about this person or this, uh, this uh, global crisis. And really, I think a better translation of that word or that I've heard is non-entanglement, so mm-hmm. that we care deeply, but there's a level of stickiness, you know, that need to control everything and have everything be a certain way in order for us to be happy, mm-hmm. that um, that really causes us suffering. And so that um, non-attachment with a child looks much more like a deep, profound love 
and still a willingness to let this human being be who they are, right? right. And to know right. that when it's time for um, for us to step back and and let them become who they are and not who we want them to be. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, no, I agree that it is a very, um, an area that has a lot of, of uh, confusion, you know, around it, this idea of non-attachment and um, thinking about it perhaps more as not non-engagement, but it's non-attachment to a given outcome, to a certain outcome. And the example you just gave, you know, like, you know, providing total love and support for our children, but not insisting that that they be the people that we want them to be, but that we honor, you know, and respect the people that they are. Yes. Yes, I remember um, a teaching, and I don't even remember who said this, but I remember it landing so deeply in my psyche um, about being with the breath. And like, if we can allow a breath to be as it is, then perhaps we can allow our partner to be as they are. Perhaps we can allow our child to be as they are. The sense of a kind of spaciousness and ease with which we approach um, uh, the people and situations in our life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That also doesn't preclude taking the action that we need to take when we need to take it. So it is. It is. Uh, it's a uh, very rich and uh it's not black and white i guess that's what i'd say and that's what you know i think people's tendency is to make it more um you know black and white yes i think another distinction that's often made is that our practice is about it's not about being passive but it's about taking that space so that we can respond wisely rather than reacting out of our habitual conditioning yes yeah indeed so um a few months after Sierra died, you and your husband started, um, you know, trying to have another baby. And then, as you mentioned, you had a second child, your son, Forrest, who I believe now is what, about 19 or so? He'll be 19 in just a couple of weeks. Ah, that's great. Um, I really enjoyed the chapter in your book that you call uh, Notes from a Three-Month Baby Retreat. <laughs> I mean, I remembered those days with, uh, you know, with a, a newborn infant myself, you know, from uh, I have I have two sons. Um, so uh, you have, you know, some great stories in there about, you know, looking at uh, at Forrest, your son, your infant son, Forrest, as this kind of zany Zen master <laughs> making you do all these things. <laughs> so what uh, what surprised you most about that experience of having and having a, a, a newborn well, I remember the first big surprise was simply the fact that I was just allowed to take this baby home with virtually no instruction manual. I remember thinking it's harder to get a driver's license. Uh, right. here, here I go with the baby. And honestly, I was really surprised at how challenging those first few months were. I think I really thought that I was going to have this because of my meditation practice, because of my yoga practice, because of my clean, healthy, vegetarian diet, I was going to have this super easy little Buddha baby. I would be able to take him with me everywhere and he wouldn't cry. And because my diet was so clean, he wouldn't spit up. And I just had to hold him all the time and he would just sleep right through the night because I was a meditator, right? 
Right. And I had seen some of those babies out and about just snoozing over lunch in the restaurant in their little bassinets. And I thought that's what my baby would be like. Right. And it actually turned out that my son was one of the babies you don't really see out and about because they're not really portable in that way. He was what was called a, um, those days, a fussy baby or a high need baby or a highly sensitive child. And he didn't sleep well, and he cried a lot. He was very sensitive to sound and light and change of environment. And so um, it was exhausting. It was overwhelming. Um, There were many moments when we were crying together. And my practice was really just to surrender and to open to who he was and not who I thought he should be and not be comparing him with this mythical baby in my mind, but really tuning into what is this child, what is being need? And what he needed, it turned out, was to be held a lot. He wanted a lot of attention. Um, he, he was not someone who slept very much or for very long, and uh, that I really needed to adjust my rhythms to his, as I did, really, right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, to nourish this particular nervous system, um, this particular person to be the best version of himself that he could be. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, um, I don't know, something about the way that you contrasted those, you know, those early days, you know, with being on a, a retreat, I just, I, I was laughing out loud at some, some of the comparisons that you made it was it was great you know to look back at it like that so um and meditation with the baby in your arms there's sitting meditation while you're breastfeeding there's certainly all of the chants the uh, you know hush little baby don't say a word chant <laughs> and that's right traditional lullabies yeah yeah so um so your book really you know illustrates the connection between your spiritual life and, you know, your experiences as a, as a, as a mother. So how did, how did you start making those connections or did it it almost sounds like you, you know, you went into it, even, you know, your pregnancy with Sierra looking at it in that way. Is that right? I really did because as I mentioned, I had been a practitioner for at this point over 15 years. So it was, kind of baked into me that my daily life was grist for the mill for my spiritual practice. Um, And it just, motherhood just upped the ante in a big way. It was such, so much more demanding. And in a way, what I saw is that I had been using my formal practice as a kind of escape and a way of of managing my life. So I had all of these rituals. I would get up early and I would have a long period of meditation and yoga. I wouldn't even turn my phone on until almost noon. I would write in my journal. I would dive right into my writing and work. I had really controlled my life to support my practice um, in a way that was keeping me from a certain level of chaos that I didn't really know how to manage. And so becoming a mother shattered, especially in those early months and years, all of these kind of coping mechanisms I had set up and really forced me to be 
in a different kind of practice where I had much less control, where I was stealing moments for the formal practice just whenever I could, you know, crank up the, the, the music box and let it play while the mobile spins around and I have time to do two yoga poses Well. My baby is entertained by the mobile, and then that's over, and I'm on to the next thing. So the form of my formal practice had to really adapt, and it had to become much more integrated into the day-to-day moments. Mm -hmm. You also write a bit about kind of this dichotomy that you were feeling there. You would be, um, you know, going when he was a little older, and you'd be going to teach. Um, You've, you know, been a teacher, spiritual teacher for you know, many years. And so you'd be going to teach kind of coming out of this, you know, sort of chaotic, you know, life and then going and being a, you know, this, this presence of calm, et cetera, and just that dichotomy and how that felt to you. Yes, there were definitely uh, some moments where I felt like I was you know, slipping into the phone booth and putting on my meditation superhero outfit and then emerging as a different person, uh, kind of like in the old comic books. Uh, <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, racing to get to the meditation retreat where I was teaching yoga on the retreat and you know, speeding down the road because the babysitter had been late and hoping I didn't get a speeding ticket on the way to the meditation retreat. And then using the walk from the parking lot up to the meditation hall as this moment to calm down and actually tap into that depth of silence that the people on the retreat were already sitting in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in addition to, you know, the stillbirth of your first child, you know, you you talk about other difficult things, you know, in your life that you have had to go through. And um, some of them revolve around um, your son, Forrest, and, and how he was early on diagnosed with um, being on the um, on the uh, spectrum, uh, autism spectrum. And, um, you know, that was a whole other thing, you know, to kind of go through. So can you tell us a little bit more about uh, that, about Forrest, his challenges, and then some of the spiritual teachings that you, um, that you lived into during that time? Yes. So when my son was three, um, he was given this diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome, which is a diagnosis previously used, part of the umbrella diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. And then about four years later, three or four years later, after a lot of intervention, the same psychologist reevaluated him and said that he had, in her words, outgrown his diagnosis. And she now said he was no longer on the autism spectrum. Now she believed he was highly gifted, which was a whole different set of interventions and approaches which were needed. And so in the book, I really talk about the journey between those two diagnoses and how I drew on what I had learned from yoga and meditation to help me and my son navigate this terrain. And in the process, what I really learned about it, about learned from it, not just about my son, but about myself. So, um, you know, first of all, I really want to preface this by saying I'm not an expert on autism spectrum disorders and every child's journey is unique. So I also don't want to say that that this is a prescriptive kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Um, but in our case, I think what I really drew on and drew inspiration from after that initial diagnosis was my practice of meditation and um, dharma, which really taught me that what we think of as a solid self is in fact not solid and not permanent and not fixed. Mm-hmm. It is a fluid, impermanent, interconnected flow that has so many elements um, and so many influences, including how we use our bodies, how we use our minds, how we interrelate with the people around us, what we think about. And so I really determined, and um, my son's dad and I really determined that we weren't going to cling to this label and we were not going to refer to him as being on the spectrum or having Asperger's. We did not share that generally and publicly. And instead, instead, we looked at the unique characteristics and looked at how can for each potential weakness, how can we bring out its associated strengths and minimize the downside? Because something that I know from yoga practice is that every human being is a bundle of strengths and weaknesses, and they're often intimately connected. So that, for instance, you are highly flexible. That's a gift in yoga, and it can also cause instability in your joints. So in the case of my son, looking at, for instance, highly sensitive um, hearing, both uh, difficulty, which meant that he had a hard time in crowds, he had a hard time with playing with other children because he often felt that they were too loud. Um, But at the same time, it had an extreme musical gift that came along with it. So how could we do interventions? We did a lot of sensory integration training that helped um, tone down the sensory sensitivities while keeping the gift that went along with that. Mm -hmm. And so that's just one example of the kind of intervention, mind-body intervention that we did quite intensively working with a variety of different occupational therapists and social skills experts over the course of a few years that in his case really transformed the diagnosis. And so mm-hmm. when the, uh, the reevaluation came, it was a completely different thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So um, one of the other quotes, so I'll uh, include this one as well. Um, I really appreciated this. So you, you write in the book, the journey to growing up is not a freeway going from Los Angeles to San Francisco by the fastest route. It's more like following a meandering back road up the coast where maybe you're stuck for miles behind a hippie van painted with flowers and vines. Maybe you decide there's no hurry after all and you pull out over to picnic on a beach where you pluck wild huckleberries sweet and tart at the same time. So, Tell us more about, you know, about that, uh, that perspective. Well, this is really just a way of saying something that we're told so often in, in our practice, which is to not focus so much on the destination as on the journey and to really be um, with our life moment to moment because we really don't know how it's going to go and what the next what's going to be around the next bend. We think we know, but we really don't. And the story I just told is an example of that. And I just wanted to loop back for any of the listeners who might be 
concerned just to let you know that my son is fine now. He's off at college. He's got a pack of friends. He's got a girlfriend. Um, he's doing extremely well. And if we had gotten stuck and um, fixated in that time when all of those challenges were going on and hadn't enjoyed him in the moment as he was, we would have been worrying about something, about a potential future that, in fact, turned out to be very different than was being predicted. Mm-hmm. So so this image of traveling not on the freeway but on the back roads is it's analogous in a way to the way you take a walk with a small child when you have this idea, all right, I'm going to the park, which is three blocks away. And you think I'm going to go to the park and I'm going to play there for two hours and then I'm going to come home and it's going to be nap time. And you start walking to the park and you realize your child finds the grate on the sidewalk two feet from your house very interesting. And you have to spend a lot of time there dropping pebbles in the grate. And then, you know, 20 feet further on, there is a cat and we have to stop and see the cat or maybe there's a blackberry or maybe there's bird poop, which is just really interesting, uh, <laughs> or an anthill. And you can start to really rush. I mean, I had these moments of like thinking that I needed to rush my son onto the park, and then I would realize we're just going to the park to go down the slides, right? There's right. nothing inherently about the park that's a destination. So right. just yes. to be able to really... Um, enjoy the moments enjoy dropping the pebbles down the grate and don't worry so much maybe you won't get to the park and that's okay so we've got just about a minute left so um as we bring the show to a close what what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to share with our listeners well just to say that childhood goes by really fast teenage years go by really fast So just savor it like that walk to the park and don't focus so much on where you're going and the next thing as on the preciousness of what is right with you right now. Absolutely. And, uh, and with that, we've come to um, the close of the show. You've been listening to the yoga hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and co-host of the show. We've been discussing parenting as a path to spiritual awakening with author and teacher Anne Cushman. We've been drawing from her recently published book, The Mama Sutra. You can find out more about Anne, her books, and teaching schedule at her website, annecushman.com. Again, that's Anne with an E, cushman.com. Thank you so much, Anne for joining me today on the Yoga Hour. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Now, just a few announcements. Yogacharya O'Brien will be offering a Kriya Yoga retreat at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California from July 25th to 27th, 2019. She's offering several programs in Portland and Eugene, Oregon this month, June 2019. She's also offering a retreat at the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health in Stockbridge, Massachusetts from August 11th to 14th, entitled Live Your Abundant Life Now. 
You can find out more about Yogacharya's upcoming speaking events this summer in Raleigh, North Carolina, and in Europe on her author website, ellengraceobrien.com. And that's Brian is with an A, B-R-I-A-N, ellengraceobrien.com. Next week, we will be highlighting an encore episode from uh, called Spiritual Lessons from Paramahansa Yogananda, Experiences of a Devoted Disciple, Part 1. This was the last Yoga Hour conversation that Yogacharya O'Brien had with her guru, Roy Eugene Davis, who had been a, a direct disciple of Yogananda. This conversation was from a, just a few weeks before he passed earlier this year. And during the conversation, they discussed Mr. Davis's experiences with his guru, Yogananda. Part two, a uh, re- continuation of that conversation between Mr. Davis and me, will air on July 4th. You can listen to these episodes anytime, uh, as well as all of our other Encore episodes in our archive at unity.fm slash the Yoga Hour. Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. CSE welcomes people from all backgrounds who are seeking self and God realization, a path to a spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. 